You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 180. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. It is three days after Christmas, two days after Christmas. I don't know. It all blended together for me at this point. I am mentally and spiritually exhausted. And so today, to spare you too much of my rambling monologues and getting lost in the tall grass of my own thoughts, I thought it better to read to you again, as I did last week, from a text that I recently received as a Christmas present, the homecoming of Bjortnoth, Bjorthelm's son, translated by J.R.R. Tolkien, with notes and commentary by Tolkien. And this episode, I think, will probably be a setup for the next episode, which is an essay entitled Overmode. And Overmode is Old English for essentially overconfidence, but More than that, what happens when chivalry goes wrong? Meaning, we have this set of principles. We have a code that we live by that embraces the virtues. But what happens when those virtues, when that code succumbs to a person's overconfidence, perhaps even arrogance. I know for myself, and maybe this has been true for you as well, that when I am confident in my abilities or I am confident in what I am teaching, that is sometimes mistaken for pride, for arrogance, a negative kind of pride, the negative side of pride. And at least in the United States, something that I have noticed, especially in the last decade or so, is that we are not allowed to be proud of our abilities or our accomplishments. And by that, what I mean is most people mistake confidence for arrogance. But if you have invested 10,000 hours or more in the study in mastering your craft, whatever it may be that you have invested your time, your attention, your money, you have devoted yourself to the pursuit of this particular topic or the thing that you have chosen to do and commit your life to. When you are confident about that, because you have put in the time, you've invested, you've suffered, you've sacrificed And you've come out the other side with a certain level of mastery over the subject matter. People will accuse you then of being overconfident, arrogant, and so on. I see this, for example, when people send me videos or articles and say, read this, listen to this. I think that this person or this video makes a really great point about a topic that Well, I'm an expert in because I've invested 20 to 25 to 30 years of my life studying it. So when I tell the person then, I don't have time, number one, to read this or listen to this because I have all of my other studies, my other responsibilities and so on to attend to. And second, I don't need to listen to another video or read another article arguing against something that I know is not knowledgeable. It's not erudite. It's not a deep argument. It's very facile. And it lacks anything that would compel me to want to engage with the author or the text. I'll be accused then of being arrogant versus, well, after 25 to 30 years of doing this, there's very few, if any, counter arguments that I have not already heard or alternative ways of thinking or approaching or addressing the particular topic. Last night, for example, talking with someone at the gym, we were discussing Muay Thai. We were discussing 
how to kick efficiently. And after eight plus years of training in Muay Thai and four years of coaching Muay Thai, instructing in Muay Thai, devoting my life to this pursuit, and then understudying and apprenticing myself to someone who's been doing it for 30 years, both at the professional, the amateur, and the personal level, this person is telling me something that I know is not true about how to throw an efficient, powerful kick. And yet my knowledge, the knowledge of my teacher was not enough to convince this person that what they had been told by someone else was not actually true. It's like I've said before, there's little R rules in martial arts. Those are the rules regarding how to set a submission in jujitsu or how to throw a punch in Muay Thai. But yet, depending on the person's body type, their abilities, how their body expresses the art side of the martial arts, they may do it a little differently. And therefore, the technique is, or the application of the technique is a little R rule. But there are big R rules as well. A rear naked choke is a rear naked choke. And there are big R rules as to how to get into a position to take the back, to secure the position, and to then apply the submission. There are big R rules. You have to do certain things, such as wrap your arm around their neck. You can't submit someone with a rear naked choke if you have not followed the fundamental rules, the big R rules of this technique. But then within that, there are options, alternatives, depending on once you get to the position, how are you going to get into the rear naked choke? And each person is going to do it slightly differently because again, their body expresses the art side of the house slightly different than others. So there's big R rules and there's little R rules. And yet there will be times when someone says, well, why can't I do it this way? And neither the big R rule or the little R rule applies. It is simply incorrect. And therefore, you must, as a coach, say, this doesn't work. And especially with new students, they will argue, but it worked against my partner when we were sparring. Yes, okay, fair. It does work against people that don't know what they're doing. But against anyone with six months of experience or more in jiu-jitsu, this is not going to work. So do not develop the wrong habit when it comes to this particular technique and its application because the shelf life is extremely limited. And yet, despite my experience or the experience of the senior instructor who's been doing this for 15 years, or going to the all levels class and learning from my coach who has decades of experience, this person will insist that he or she is the first person to discover the secret key to this particular technique. And therefore, they are going to do this come hell or high water because they are convinced this will work. And of course, it doesn't. The rules don't apply to false techniques. And then they have to learn the painful, the hard way, as we all do, by the way, when we first start jujitsu or Muay Thai. We are convinced that by following certain rules, treating this like a buffet line, there are other things that we can bring to it that no one has ever done before. And I find it humorous because as a teacher at the seminary, a teaching assistant at the seminary at the university, my professors would have me teach classes for them, grade papers, sit with the students and work through problems with them and help them. Every semester, I would hear the exact same thing from academic students. I did it my first semester as an academic student, challenging the professor because I had read more or I knew more or the professor had never possibly considered my perspective before. And I was bringing something new and unique to the table. I was going to wow them with my intelligence and my acumen and my knowledge. But of course, I learned from them later. Every semester, there was that student, me, sitting in that same spot, challenging the professor with the exact same line of argumentation that I thought I had invented. And I think this is the danger then of too little learning and too little humility, is that when we first start something, especially if we're immature and we're unseasoned, 
and we think that the purpose of study is to come up with something that's never been thought of, imagined, or implemented or applied before versus, no, we're here to learn from the masters who have invested thousands and thousands of hours of their time and their energy and their attention to the very topic that you are now studying with them. That, by the way, in the case of academia or at the gym, you're paying them to teach you. So you're paying them as an expert in this particular field of study to teach you their knowledge, their wisdom, and so on. And yet you're going to challenge them because you are convinced that they are doing it wrong. They've never considered this before. What you're bringing to the table, again, is unique versus why not wait? Why not wait and see whether what they are teaching you is actually a master at work? But if you don't sit down and close your mouth and open your ears, if you're not open to the possibility that what you are learning is new and therefore you bring almost nothing to the table of use that you can contribute to the conversation right now. Now, as you advance, of course, questions come, your studies reveal different things to you that you can bring to the table and then say, well, from my side of the table, in my reading, in my application of these things, in my practice, I was thinking, what about this? I do this quite often with my coach where he'll teach a technique, I'll do it, and then I'll call him over and say, well, what about this? Is this an option or am I just barking up the wrong tree? And then he'll say, well, yeah, but no. <laughs> or he'll say, well, yeah, that's an option off of that, but I'm not going to teach that tonight. So, you know, yes, you're right, but not tonight. And then I just put that in my back pocket. Either, no, I'm, I'm not thinking about this correctly. I misapplied the technique, which then opened up a branching chain of other techniques that I'll never get to because I applied the original technique incorrectly. Or yeah, that is an option. So when you are rolling or when you are sparring, this is an option when you get to this position. But I never say to my coach, unless I'm joking with him, I'm not going to do this because you're not teaching it correctly. He's got decades of experience. I've got eight plus years of experience. He's got me. And the nice thing about combat martial arts is that if I ever disagree with my professor or my coach and think that I've got it figured out or I know better than him, we can just spar. And then he can apply the technique to me in real time and show me, A, he knows what he's doing. B, the technique does actually work when it's applied correctly. And C, I need to humble myself and become a student and recognize I am not the master. So circling back around then, we often then mistake that though for arrogance, that confidence. And when we do that, it shuts us off to the possibility that because we have not devoted the time, the energy, or the attention in our own life to mastering something, when we encounter others who are masters of their craft, we are threatened by that. It functions like I've talked about before as a kind of mirror held up to our face to say, you've never done anything like this. You've not invested the time necessary to master anything. You're more of a dilettante when it comes to pursuing different interests. Maybe you do it for three months or six months or a year, but then you get tired of it and you move on to something else. But you think, because you've watched some videos, read a few blog articles, talked about it with friends over coffee or whatnot, that somehow you've got it figured out enough that you can then challenge masters. And I see this, like I said, quite often, and I encounter it quite often. One of the things about being a pastor, and this is a cultural thing, so this is inside baseball for all of you who don't know, but one of the things about being a pastor is I am constantly challenged by people regarding language, that is what the text of the Old and New Testaments says, even though I read, write, and translate seven different languages, and I've been doing that since I was a child, learning languages and so on, or they'll challenge me about theology because they read a blog or watched a video, even though I've read literally thousands of books and tens of thousands of articles and devoted every waking moment of the past 28 years to the study of the topic of theology and all that it encompasses. 
They'll challenge me on history, even though I have a PhD in history. They'll challenge me about preaching and teaching, even though I've studied oratory, rhetoric. I have submitted myself to masters of the craft of teaching and preaching because I know I need to constantly improve. Pastoral care is the same way. You don't do it right because you're not doing it the way I want you to. Why aren't you being more therapeutic? Why aren't you being more this or more that? And what they don't want to talk about is the tens of thousands of hours that I've devoted to mastering my craft as a preacher and teacher, which includes then the knowledge of language and how to read and translate text, how to read and translate history, how to engage with theologians and philosophers and authors on their terms, according to the rules that they apply to the text that they are writing. And on and on it goes. In some sense, when any of us become interested in something that we're passionate about, we become monomaniacal in our pursuit of knowledge regarding that topic or that person or that thing. And once we do that, other people who don't want to invest the same amount of time and energy or just can't because they have other vocations and other responsibilities, they look at us and they say, well, you're just arrogant versus, no, I'm confident because I put the time in. I've invested the energy, the money, the sacrifice necessary to learn from my spiritual fathers and mothers to learn from those who are far smarter than I could ever hope to be, better at expressing themselves, better linguists and philologists, better historians and theologians, better philosophers and authors than I could ever hope to be. And so I sit at their feet with my ears open and my mouth shut asking, teach me more. So yes, when you come out the other side of that and you have a certain adeptness when it comes to handling the topic that you have invested so much time and energy in, you are a master of that topic, or at least approaching the level of mastery. And so long as you don't use that as a cudgel, as a weapon to beat other people over the head with, then you are confident in a positive sense versus overconfident in a negative sense. And again, I think that we don't spend enough time simply considering the foundation on which we stand when it comes to those things that we know a lot about. I've been cooking for myself since I was a little boy. And I've learned from people in Louisiana how to cook Cajun food. I've learned from people in Mexico and Guatemala how to cook Mexican and Guatemalan cuisine. I've learned from people on the West Coast and the East Coast and the Midwest how to cook. But that doesn't make me a master of cooking. It simply means that I'm adept at cooking with different spices in different styles because of what I've been taught. But I've never invested the time that's necessary to say I'm a master chef, nor would I claim that. My wife is an exceptional baker, and yet she's constantly learning and studying in how to become better at baking because baking is chemistry. And if you're not good at chemistry, you're probably not going to be very good at baking. Whereas for me, cooking is more of an art project. And so you have to understand how seasoning goes together, like when you mix paint and the composition of the meal, such as when you sculpt something. And yet my wife would never claim to be a master either then. She is always the student. And perhaps then that is, to bring it to a, a head, that is the point. At base, the difference between confidence and arrogance or overconfidence, overmode, is just that. When you stop being a student and start thinking of yourself as a master and you expect people then to sit at your feet and to shut up and listen, then I think you are walking the path toward overconfidence and arrogance. And I think it's a very fine line, actually. 
that's the, the temptation there is it's a very fine line between, well, yes, I've mastered this topic and therefore let me tell you what I know versus sit down and shut up and listen because I know more than you, right? And therefore the way I think for myself anyways, to avoid becoming arrogant is to remember that the people that I'm learning from were, like I said, more erudite, better at expressing themselves than I will ever be. I said this to someone, I think last week, is that friends of mine have said how they've commented, how erudite I am, how well read, how widely read, how easily I can go in and out of of different topics and conversations and, and have a conversation about those topics. And I reminded the person that everything that I've accomplished in my life as an adult, as far as academics, learning, and so on, if you were to compare me to someone who lived 200 years ago, I'm a monkey. I am unimpressive in relation to them, in comparison to them. They would look at me and say, well, that's what grammar school boys learn. And you're 52 years old? That's not erudite. (laughs) That's just you playing catch up. Because the times were different, expectations were different, and so on and so forth. And so again, to read, you know, long dead authors at this point, to study people like Tolkien or Nietzsche, people who are masters of language, to read the Greeks and the Romans, to read the Hagakure or the Dokodo and reflect on, well, what did Musashi, for example, what did he have to go through that allowed him then toward the end of his life to record the things that he had learned in a, in a kind of form of wisdom literature? What did he have to go through? Um, well, he had to regularly put his life on the line in sword duels. He had to constantly repent and learn and seek to become more adept at swordsmanship, philosophy, art. He was constantly being pushed, not only by himself, but externally, of course, by his challengers. So when he writes down his wisdom toward the end of his life, who am I who have never engaged in a single sword duel Who am I to question his wisdom and to say, well, you don't know what you're talking about? Or, well, I think I bring something to the table that Musashi could not have possibly considered as it relates to this topic. Now, that's not to say it's not possible that I bring something new to the table. I'm just saying it's unlikely. Likewise, when I read the old Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Icelandic texts, I asked myself the same question. Do I see the world the same way that they did? Do I approach the world and interface with it the same way they did? Do I know what they knew? And if I don't, who am I to lecture them simply because they're dead and they can't form a retort to my, my accusations and my assertions? Who am I to challenge them and to say, well, you just don't know. You're, you're superstitious. You're, you're silly. You're primitive. The arrogance, the hubris of the presence, of the present, sorry, it comes with the assumption that we are more evolved, more progressed, wiser, more knowledgeable, more educated, better thinkers than those ignorant savages of the past. When, at least from my side of the house, I think we have regressed. I think we're children in relation to those people. Because in our arrogance, we actually think that because we have the internet or we can go on YouTube and watch a video about this, that, or the other thing, that somehow that means that we are better than they are intellectually, physically, philosophically, theologically, spiritually, whatever it might be. Versus, well, what if we just sit down and open our ears and close our mouths and live as students? What would happen then? Would we be better for it? I think we are. That's why I have this podcast and I read the books that I read to you to hopefully inspire you to say, 
maybe there's more that I need to think about. Maybe my presuppositions and my prejudices are not benefiting me, they're not helping me, and therefore they're preventing me from helping others. And ultimately, too, what's the purpose of life? For me, it's long been to constantly engage in the study and to learn from others who are wiser, more experienced, more erudite, and more expressive, better at expressing themselves than I am. It started when I was a child and it continues to this day. And I think maybe also then that's a branch that kind of veers off from this topic, which is once you've lost the childlike sense of wonder, that if you remember what it was like, or you have children of your own, or you observe children, that everything is new and exciting to them. And therefore, they are constantly excited to learn, if you're excited to. And as such, <clears throat> as adults, we become jaded. And we forget, or we push away at some point, that childlike sense of wonder about the world. And we're no longer excited to learn. Again, a friend asked me at the gym last night if I had made any New Year's resolutions, to which I said, no, that's ridiculous. New Year's resolutions are like going on a diet. <clears throat> Plus, it's an arbitrary date on a calendar, and the calendar itself isn't very accurate, so what's the point? If you're going to do something, do it. And therefore, every day, my resolution is the same, which is to put to death the weaker version of myself that I was yesterday. Through study, through exercise, through service to others. But once I lose that desire, that childlike sense of wonder at the world, I become very stagnant, very pessimistic. I become hopeless. Then my anxiety kicks in. Depression, melancholy. It affects me physically, emotionally, and intellectually. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. And unfortunately, in the past, I've subjected you to it who've listened to the podcast. And so I think at this point then, when we go back to the old texts, you know, as it relates to this podcast, what I'm trying to do, and I think what you're trying to do by listening to these, is to recover that childlike sense of wonder about the world, to remain curious, to remain students, because like I said, I think that's really the point of life. Even as a Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm having stomach problems this week because of exhaustion and not taking care of myself. But I do think as even as a Christian, we are created by God to listen to him, to be students of him. Jesus himself called disciples, called students to be with him, that he might teach them and then send them out after his resurrection to spread the message of the kingdom of God. And then those disciples called disciples and so on to the present tense. And so as a Christian anyways, if it's the way God set things up, then who am I to argue with God? And even if you're not a Christian and you're not a person who believes in God, what's the difference between the joy of learning versus walking through life assuming that you have everything figured out already? Because of course, we all know at heart that we don't have it figured out. We're not in control, but we're going to fool ourselves in the present tense and argue that I know everything that I need to know to get by, to live. And everything that I don't know, I don't need to know. So what's the point about learning? That's why talking with my friend last night, I said, really, the only thing that I've done that's kind of new for the new year is set myself to doing a kind of self-driven PhD in Anglo-Saxon Christianity in literature from the 6th through the 11th centuries. And I do that because one, I love the topic and I love reading these old texts. And number two, it keeps me constantly learning and therefore constantly challenged, keeps my brain engaged, keeps me excited to get up every day and get after it again. And whatever that thing is for you, I encourage you to do the same. You don't have to pay tens of thousands of dollars to a university to get a master's or a PhD in something. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family. Do it for your neighborhood or your community to better serve them. We used to have people like that, farmer philosophers, 
you know, people that worked with their hands who were also poets. And we've lost that because the university and academia wants us to believe that the only way for us to become educated in the, you know, right way, quote unquote, right way, is to invest tens of thousands of dollars to go into debt, to get a piece of paper so that we can say to people, well, I have a PhD in church history. Okay. And what does that mean? Especially nowadays when people don't respect academics like they used to versus why not just do it for yourself, right? Become a healer. Spend the next 10 to 12 years studying medicine, like real medicine and how to heal people. And then use that knowledge to be of service to your family and your community. You don't need a degree to do that so long as you understand the law and how not to get yourself in trouble by offering medical advice to people without a medical degree. But there's a difference between a doctor and a healer. And through studying healing and through studying the old ways, you'll discover that. And then you can counsel people and walk with people and offer them free advice that is not a diagnosis, not a prescription for how to get better, but simply offering your sage advice and counsel because you've invested the 10,000 hours necessary to become a master of your craft. Same thing with woodworking, same thing with baking, same thing with teaching. It's all the same. Ask any parent with their first child how good they were at parenting those first 11 years of life right? You're, you're just trying to figure it out. You don't, you have no clue. You learn that you can't teach your kids like your parents taught you and you can't avoid making the same mistakes as your parents by not teaching your children the way that your parents taught you. Each child is unique and therefore as a parent, you have to really become a student of your child. You have to learn how to study your child and learn this is how we address our child. This is how we treat our child. And as you have multiple children, you then learn to your surprise, they're not all the same. And what applies to one child does not apply to another. Each one of my five children is the same in that they are our children and yet entirely different because each one has their own personality. One child doesn't require a lot of attention. The other requires an immense amount of attention. And therefore you have to learn as a student how to parent the child while simultaneously being the adult in the room and being the responsible one. Again, it's a very fine line that you walk as a parent. And when you take it seriously, there is no end to the possibilities for learning. Let's put it that way. And if we approach life as students, I think it makes life more fun. I think it gives you more hope because every day then when you wake up is a new day that you can learn something that you didn't know yesterday. I've talked about this even in relationships. Every day I wake up and the first thing that I do as a part of my sobriety is to ask, what am I grateful for today? I have been given another day. I open my eyes and I'm still here. What am I grateful for? And usually it's what's immediately in front of me, my wife, one of my children. Or I wake up and I look out the window, which is immediately across from my pillow and I look outside at the trees in the sky and I say to myself, I'm grateful that there are trees because as Tolkien noted, no one speaks for the trees and I think we should. <laughs> so I'm grateful for the trees. I'm grateful for the wind. I'm grateful for the weather because I'm here. Even as savage as the weather may be or as tepid as it is right now in the upper Midwest, I'm grateful for the weather because I'm here and that's something to be grateful for. And if we take the time, it shouldn't take very much effort to just pinpoint one thing that we can be grateful for. Even if we don't like our job, even if we're unsatisfied in our relationship at home, even if we're struggling with personal demons or addictions, there is one thing, at least one thing, if you really focus, that you can be grateful for. Beginning with, I'm still here. And if you're still here, and you're still breathing and your feet are still above ground and they're under you, you can get sober today. You can change your life today. You can improve your situation today. But it starts with gratitude and then it builds off of that. 
And so why not dedicate yourself to living in gratitude, to becoming a student of life, a student of your children, a student of your relationship, a student of whatever craft or pursuit you choose to go after. Because at, at the least, you find out in three to six months, I don't have the same passion for this that I used to. Well, you're a little better off for having learned about this topic. And now you know, this isn't something I want to dedicate the next 10 to 12 years of my life to. But I'm still grateful that I invested the time to learn about these things because it's enriched me as a person. Now, what else is there? And at a certain point, I think you do end up running into that thing then that you are passionate about. And you bring all those other experiences with you to the table that will enrich your time learning about this new topic that you're so passionate about. And if you're, in, if you're enriched by it and you are grateful and take joy in this thing, it will, it will spread to other people because that joy will pour out of you. That excitement will be noticeable. And hopefully then it will inspire other people to find their thing that they're passionate about. And yet, like I said, along the way, you're going to encounter people who are not excited by your excitement. They don't share your passion and your confidence because you've put the time in. They're going to interpret that and take that as being arrogance. And that's just the way it is. You can't change those people's opinion at that point because you're a mirror to them. And they're staring at themselves and they're saying, well, I've never taken the time and invested in anything with the kind of attention and focus and energy that this person has invested in this topic. Nor do I want to. And that's okay too. We, we recognize those folks for who they are and that they're not going to be the people that want to walk with us or go off and do their own thing. Especially in the United States. That's kind of par for the course with our population nowadays. Know enough to just get yourself in trouble. <laughs> that seems to be the ethic. But regardless, I didn't plan on talking about this. So it's very interesting to me that this is what I'm talking about to you right now, 37 minutes in. But yeah, that overconfidence thing, I fall into it all the time. Because to be completely honest and transparent, the more time you spend mastering your subject, the easier it is to succumb to the temptation to lord over others and to weaponize your knowledge your abilities, because you've put so much time into it. If you're not in the right mindset, it's very easy then to turn on someone and say, how can you possibly question me? Don't you know? <laughs> I'm a master at this thing. It's funny when you talk about it out loud, <laughs> but when it's in your own head and it's an internal monologue or dialogue, it makes total sense. And so maybe that's what we should focus on at this time of year, every year not just every day, but really bring it to the surface at the end of every year to say the calendar is what it is and we use it functionally to show up for work on time and to know when Saturday rolls around and we can sleep in and so on. But yet ultimately, all that really matters is that we wake up in the morning and we're grateful for the new day. And when we put our head down on the pillow at night and it's dark, we can be grateful for that too, that we are given another day of life. And that during that day, there were ups and there were downs and there were joys and there were sorrows. There was struggle, both positive and negative. There were people that we truly enjoyed being with that were a gift to us. And there were other people that we suffered. And that's called life. That's what life is. And as a consequence, we get to be here and we get to learn new things every day and take joy in those things every single day. And so having not even gotten to the text that I was going to read today, almost 40 minutes into this episode, focus on what you can be grateful for today and give thanks for today and for all of the opportunities that are presented to you today. Because even if you don't believe in God, there are so many people in the cemetery who would trade places with you in a moment for just one more hour of a day to say to their family and friends the things that they never got the chance to say. 
and to do that thing or those things that they really wish they could have done before they died. And so we get to live for them and we get to enjoy life for them and honor them, whether they enjoyed life or whether they squandered it, we get to live for them as well and honor that. And to learn that it is so easy to get down on ourselves and down on culture and down on the world and forget that it's a gift to be here at all. And even if you think that your being here is an accident, you're still here. Whether you believe you're created by God or not, you're still here. And as far as accidents go, that's a pretty good deal then. And you're not a squirrel, <laughs> right? You're not a toad. You're not a tree. You're not a rock. You're a human being. And you get to do all these awesome and amazing things today that human beings get to do should they choose to do them. Go on adventures, learn new things, engage with people that excite you and even make you euphoric. That's all there. We just have to go out and look for it and seek after it and then recognize when we get a hold of it, this is good. This is a good thing. I gotta, I gotta ride this horse. This is fantastic. Because if we let loose, like I said, and allow ourselves to simply drift through life, there's a gravity to the negative that the positive doesn't share. And one negative comment, one hour of watching the news, for example, doom scrolling social media, listening to friends and family talk about all of their woes and how miserable they are. That gravity that comes with that negative can pull us down and drown us if we're not careful. And so at the very least, recognize that that negativity has gravity to it and it has a pull. Whereas positivity is like a balloon. It can carry us upward, but any slight shift in the wind will throw us off course and anything that contacts that balloon will pop it like a soap bubble. And so we have to be grateful too for the good times and for those moments of quiet and rest or those moments when we're holding hands with someone we love or we wake up in the morning and look out the window and realize I'm here. I get another day. I get to do, well, a lot that I didn't do yesterday and I can do it today. Yesterday I crawled out of bed and just grabbed something out of the refrigerator and shoved it in my mouth because I didn't feel like cooking. But today I'm going to make eggs for myself. I'm going to throw a steak on the grill. I'm going to learn how to whittle. <laughs> I'm going to do something today that I didn't get a chance to do yesterday. And in doing that, I'll be enriched. I'll be a better person. And maybe the thing that I do today catches my attention, holds my heart. And it is the thing that I have been searching for, for months or years. And now that I found it, I realize, oh, that's what I was missing. This is the thing that makes me feel whole, that makes me happy and grateful to just get up in the morning. But if we stop being students, if we stop searching for that thing, if we stop looking for it, even if we don't know what it is, once we find it, it'll grab a hold of us like a dog on a bone and not let go. You know, I've talked about this, especially the last two months. As an adolescent, when I discovered Arthurian legends, myths, when I discovered the Odyssey and the Iliad, when I discovered The Hobbit when I was 11 or 12, 12, that was it for me. Like that was it. I became a fantasy fanatic in high school, played Dungeons and Dragons, got into video games, of course. But over the years, again, because of other responsibilities, I'd always been interested in it and I never lost my passion for it. But I never had time to invest in the study of it and to go deeper into it like I have been given now. And for myself, then, I see that as a godly gift that God is saying to me, we let that field lay fallow for a number of years, but now it's time to plant and harvest because the, the ground is ready. And I know this because it has grabbed me and it has held my attention in a way that 
other things that I was interested in learning about or interested in pursuing have not. It's like when people say, well, how do you know when you're passionate about like jujitsu? Well, you're not a drug addict, but essentially that's what happens is you become a drug addict, but it's jujitsu or Muay Thai or whatever it may be. And that is slowly but surely your closet fills up with rash guards and shorts and spats and hoodies and shirts and so on that have the logo of your gym or pertain to jujitsu and Muay Thai on them. And suddenly you have 80 to 90% of your closet is just gym clothing and you have like one or two sets of nice clothes. And when you're not at the gym training, you wish you were. And even on your worst days at the gym, you're excited to get back the next day. That's how you know. If you don't feel that and you're just a hobbyist, it's something that you're interested in and you like, but it's not your passion. Totally understandable. That's most people at the gym. But for those of us who are passionate about it, it's grabbed our attention for whatever reason. We know then, okay, this is just what I do now. It's not like a diet where I'm going to do this for a while until I get to a certain point and then I can say, okay, I've lost the weight and now I can move on. No, this is something that I must do because it makes me a better person. And by making me a better person, it makes me a better person for other people so that I can be of service to them too. And as I was saying to my friend last night, whenever someone says, why do you have to do that so much? Why can't you spend more time with me or doing this other thing? Well, everything you like about me is because of this thing that I'm doing. So take away this thing that I'm doing that makes me the person that you like to be around. And I'm not going to be the person you like to be around anymore. Because this thing that I do, these things that I read or study or, or whatever I engage in, they make me me. They make me the person that you are attracted to that you like to be around. Take them away and I'm going to become a very negative, pessimistic, resentful, grumbly kind of person. And you're not going to like to be around me. And then you're going to say, you've changed. What happened? Well, you didn't recognize the thing that made me so attractive to you in the first place. And then you cut that off and demanded that I sacrifice that for you versus recognizing I may not understand why you're so passionate about this, but I do recognize that it does make you the type of person that I like to be around. So go do that thing and then come back to me. Those opportunities are out there for all of us. It's just a matter, like I said, of searching for them. And maybe, again, it takes three to six months for you to figure out this isn't the thing, but I'm better off for having learned it. Or you land on it, it grabs a hold of you, and you recognize this is my thing. This is my jam. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And I think part of the awesomeness of those things, whatever it might be for you, is the fact that when it grabs a hold of you, you can say, I don't understand why this is the thing, but it just is for me. I love that. I love the mystery part of passion. I don't understand why 6th through 11th century Anglo-Saxon literature grabs my heart the way it does and makes me feel good all the way down to my soul, but it does. Others look at that and say, I don't get it. And I say to them, I totally understand because that thing that you do, I would never do that. That To me, that's drudgery. That's relentless monotony. But you love it. You're excited by it. So what can I do to encourage you to keep doing that thing because it makes you a better person? And so if you haven't found that thing yet, please continue pursuing the search for it. And if you have found it, please lean into it and don't stray away from it. And don't let other people dissuade you from pursuing your passion and not recognizing this is actually what makes me a better person for everyone. Because like I said, there are going to be more people than not who don't recognize this is a good thing. This is what makes you, you and why they're attracted to you in the first place. And for those few people that do recognize that, even if they don't share your passion, those are the good ones. Those are the true friends. Those are the people that you want to build your relationships around because they want what's best for you. And they recognize this thing that you do it's making you a good person. And every day I see you improving and changing and struggling and sacrificing for this thing. 
And people respect that. They respect people who are willing to suffer and sacrifice for their passions. But like I said, there's certainly plenty of other people who are going to say, wow, what a huge waste of time. Can't believe you, you dedicate so much effort to this. What a waste. That's fine. Those people don't understand because they don't share that. That desire to be students, that excitement for learning, the curiosity for, for life and the wonder for life. And that's, that's okay. We just have to acknowledge that they're not with us and we have to keep moving. We're climbing a mountain and they don't want to climb. And that's cool. That's, that's them. That's fine. And so, yeah, I guess that's the message I have for you today. I didn't plan on saying any of this. And yet here we are at 50 minutes in and I've been talking about it incessantly. So, okay, I guess we're not reading uh, the homecoming of Bjornot today. We'll read it next week. But I guess then this is what needed to be said today. And who am I to question the muse? So I hope then, whether you're an artist, whether you are a parent, whether you have a job that you go to every day and you're asking yourself, why am I doing this? The relationship that you're in or the relationships that you have that you're saying, I'm just not excited by these things anymore. These people just don't seem to be excited for what I'm into. Take a step back, reflect, ask yourself, what am I grateful for today? Are these people walking with me or are they trying to prevent me from climbing up the mountain? Do they share passion? Even if it's a different kind of passion, are they at least passionate about what they're doing? And we're kind of, we're encouraging each other to pursue our passions, to better ourselves. Or are they constantly saying, I don't, why are you wasting your time with that? Ask yourself these questions and then ask, is it worth it to stay at that job, to remain in those relationships, to keep pursuing the, this thing that you don't have a passion for anymore? And are you willing to make the sacrifices necessary to continue climbing the mountain? Or have you set the ceiling for yourself and said, this is good enough? And if it is good enough and you accept that, that's good. But also accept then that perhaps because you're unsatisfied or unhappy or ungrateful, it's because you've allowed other people or maybe even yourself to hamstring and hobble your climb. And maybe it's time to shake that off, to untie the knot and to say, I have to keep going. And if you come with me, fantastic. We can support each other as we climb, especially when things get difficult. If you don't want to climb with me, I'm going to continue the ascent. And when I meet people along the way, we'll walk with each other. We'll share the struggle together. We'll sacrifice for each other because we're pursuing the same goal, which is to climb this mountain. And finally, then of course, it's not getting to the peak that matters. It's the climb itself. Once you get to the peak, you got to go down because there's another mountain and it's taller than the one that you just summited. And so enjoy the climb. Don't worry about getting to the peak. If you keep climbing and you're consistent step by step by step, eventually you'll get to the top. And you get to the top and you summit and you look around and you say, um, that mountain over there is taller than this mountain. I thought the one I was on was the tallest mountain. What's that over there? Well, let's go climb it. Because once you've climbed one mountain, no matter how large or small it is, it encourages you to keep climbing, to keep ascending, to keep learning, to keep being curious, to keep moving forward. Because to me, like I said, that's the purpose of life. And so I hope then that this encourages you and causes you to reflect and to question your own presuppositions, your own prejudices. Have you just kind of sat down and become stagnant and sedentary and you kind of lost your way and didn't really realize, man, I'm not really moving forward. That's why I've been so down lately. That's why I've been ungrateful. That's why I felt kind of miserable and resentful about things. I sat down and I stopped moving. I stopped learning. I stopped being passionate about things. So how do I recover that? Well, step one, stand up. Step two, move forward. Figure out your purpose, right? Figure out the plan, figure out your goal, figure out the path, and then just stay on the path, to quote Jocko. And by doing that, through the struggle, through the sacrifice, through the joy, you will find what? You'll find your passion. And then life will improve. And in the end, I think that's what it's all about. 
So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everything that you've done the past year. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that you listen and that this has been beneficial to you. I'm thankful that you've been with me through the downs and the ups and through all the different things that I've been learning through the last three or four years on this podcast. Thank you for all of that. I I appreciate you and I'm grateful for you. And so with that, I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace. Hey folks, this is just a quick epilogue that I wanted to include for this podcast because number one, I said at the front end of the episode that I didn't want to wander through the tall grass of my own thoughts and yet that's the entirety of this episode was doing just that. So that's Donovan's brain on exhaustion, me just wandering. So I hope it was cogent and I hope that it was still helpful and edifying to you, my thoughts. Second, there was a lot of throat clearing and sniffling and coughing that I edited out of this episode. So I hope my edits don't disrupt the natural flow of the monologue and disrupt your enjoyment of the episode. And then lastly, and most importantly, and the reason I wanted to do this epilogue is at the front end of the episode, I talked about doing things for three to six months and then moving on to something else. And the connotation was that that's a negative. And I wasn't clear enough, I don't think, because later on in the episode, I actually addressed doing things for three to six months as a positive. So again, let me clarify. What I meant at the front end about it was those who do something for three to six months without any intention, they're just doing it to doing it. They're like a bumblebee just kind of floating from flower to flower pollinating. They don't really know why they're doing something other than it just makes them happy. And that's enough. And for myself anyways, it's my opinion that simply doing something because it makes you feel happy will lead to negative consequences because you're not really going into it with any intention or any purpose and there's really no goal versus toward the middle and the end of the podcast when I talk about doing something for three to six months as a positive, what I meant was doing something with intent, with purpose entering into, let's say, I'm going to take up kayaking, or I'm going to take up a new field of study, academically speaking, or I'm going to go out of my way to make new friendships. There's an intent to that. There's a thoughtfulness behind it, a purpose. You know why you're doing it. And I think that's the distinction is when we do things simply because it makes us happy, we're just satisfying some craving, scratching an itch. We flit about moving from one thing to the next thing without really ever considering why we're doing it in the first place versus I'm going to go into this with intention and with purpose. I want to learn about this thing. I want to do this because it does interest me. And I do think this is something that I could really get involved with that would make my life better. And maybe at root then that's the distinction. Are we doing something just to do it because it gives us temporary pleasure Or are we doing something because we believe it's going to contribute to our overall health and well-being? And then at the end, if we say, it didn't really satisfy me in the way that I wanted it to or that I expected at the front end, we can still walk away having gained that experience and that education that will then enrich our studies as we continue down this path that we're on versus why am I doing this? It makes me happy. Until it doesn't make me happy, Then I move on to the next thing that makes me happy and the next and the next and the next ad nauseum. I think that ultimately leads to despair, a sense of like nothing seems to be able to make me happy and I don't know why versus, well, this thing didn't ultimately satisfy me and therefore I'm going to put it in my toolbox. I'm going to carry it with me because it was still a good experience and I learned a lot from it, but I know this is not my passion. This is not the thing that has really kind of awoken me to all the other possibilities that I was ignorant of previous to doing this thing. So I hope that clarifies what I was talking about in the podcast. And I apologize for any confusion that I may have given you between the beginning and the end, talking about the same topic, but in a positive versus negative way. Like I said, mentally, I'm not really all here. I'm dead from the neck up today. So that being said, thanks again for listening to the podcast. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your support. And we'll talk to you again soon. Peace.